0: Hey everybody, Jimmy Smith on today's Unlocking the Cage podcast, Aspen Lad not making weight and shaking while doing it. We talk about weight cutting in MMA and what are the possible solutions. We also do a movie preview with Fandango's Eric Davis about the Venom sequel and The Many Saints of Newark, the prequel for That's Right, The Sopranos. For those who are unaware, Aspen Lad again, big issues making weight. Remember, she had this problem against Jermaine Durandamy. She got knocked out in the first round. It did not work out great for her. She actually, on her social media, made a very interesting statement. I'm seeing if she has it. Uh, I I saw it on her Instagram. Let me see if I have it here because I just read it on her Instagram. Um, Anyway... She uh, said basically that it was Macy Chasen who didn't want to fight. The UFC did not scrap the fight. That's interesting. Let's see if that's true. Now, I'm looking at her Instagram right now. She had posted something. I believe it's on her story. Uh, No, it's not on her Instagram. All right. Okay. Here we go. Uh, Fight is off again. All my fault. Straight up. Started my period two days back and made this cut absolutely miserable. Did the best I could. I hit 137. The scale situation was a mess because the last thing I wanted was to bleed in front of the media. The fight wasn't pulled. My opponent then decided she would rather not go through with it, as is her right. I'm going to get slammed regardless, so let it begin. What do you think about that? That we thought everything we read, and I'm looking at, for example, um, uh, TMZ, their headline is, you, uh, la, la, Aspen Ladd blames Miserable Way Cut on period fight off. But the, the, the headline you click on says UFC Cuts Fight. Um, I'm trying to see if there's any evidence that the UFC or it was asked, or it was her opponent that, that that pulled out. Yeah, everything says UFC cancels bout after Aspen lad Now, this is uh, Yahoo Sports. UFC cancels bout after Aspen Ladd repeats history with scary weigh-in. Um... So, alright. It was it actually the wake cut was actually so bad last time out that she was eventually suspended from fighting. So uh I don't know if we're gonna find out if the UFC did it or if her opponent chose. Either way, it's the way it goes. Um either way it's the way it goes. But but here's the deal. Um she's done this before, obviously, against Jermaine Duranami. So The whole, yeah, it was just bad this one time because of my period and all this stuff. I'm not saying that wasn't a factor. I'm not saying that wasn't an issue. That that didn't have something to do with it. But you also had this happen the last time you you tried to make weight. It was terrible then, too. So the whole, yeah, I was on my period and it just hit at the wrong time. Uh, Did she say that last time? When she looked like death against Jermaine Duran getting on the scale, shaking, and all that stuff? I don't know. And also, my question is, she looked equally bad against Jermaine Duran That fight was not called off. So when a fight is or is not called off, uh, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of logic to it. Now, bear in mind, these are different commissions in different states. So, one state will let you go get through something that um, another state will not. It's just the nature of the beast. So, so many factors to think about when it comes to this, but what can we do? K.O.B., you're a wrestler just like me. Did your wrestling coach make you wrestle at a particular weight class, or was that on you? A little bit of both. A little bit of both. My, ju- okay. my junior year, yeah. Yeah. Just so that one year you had you had to make this weight class.
1: Yes, sir. I had to cut. 45? 145. I actually weighed by the time we got around to the season, I weighed about one fifty-seven.
0: Okay, all right. That's not that's not great, but it's not bad. Like by, yeah. by, by. Well, when you're doing it every every,
1: it. every couple days, it's not it's not right. exactly fun. But yes. <laughs> It's a 12 twelve pound cut every two days or so.
0: Yeah, that sucks. Um, could you beat the guy at fifty twos?
1: Yeah, that wasn't the issue. We thought at the time that A, I'd probably be better off because I, I would have been kind of an undersized fifty-two. Yeah. So I would have to really like not not kind of. At that at that time that year, very undersized for fifty-two. And we didn't have a massive team, so we had to try to keep bodies where we could. We would have had like an empty forty-five spot if I didn't do it. And I also thought it was gonna be gonna be the better place for me. It ended up being the toughest division in the state that year. <laughs> I faced of course. many I, mean I faced many, sense. many a big time state wrestler in that season. A lot of beatings I took that season on top of cutting weight. But okay. uh so, yeah, it was a bit of a combo decision. I thought I'd be better off there. My coach thought I'd be better off there. And we had a chance to, to field a more full team if I was there.
0: Right. So the question here, and it seems like everybody always puts it on UFC or, you know, they should do something and this stuff. Um, when you say they, by the way, you mean the UFC. Nobody else is going to intervene on behalf of these fighters. Commissions aren't really going to do it. They don't have the resources. I don't know how, and I mean this sincerely. I don't know how anyone outside of a fighter and their camp could ever really make this decision. The only thing I can think of is once there is one issue like this, if you miss weight one time, or if you miss weight over a certain number of pounds one time, you can't go back to that weight class. That's the only solution I can think of is like, for example, against Jermaine Ranami, when she looked terrible, they said, okay, you look terrible. You can't come down here again. Not possible. Or you miss weight. Besh on this card, miss weight by 2 pounds. The UFC says, all right, you can't come down here anymore. Once you don't make it X number of times, or by X number of pounds, you are never allowed to go back to that weight class. Here's the issue, folks. If there's a standout marquee fighter in a particular weight class and you make this rule and it's unbreakable, you might cost you some big-time matches. What if, and this is obviously a what if, what if, um, you know... Kamaru Usman misses weight at 170 pounds for a title fight. And your rule is, once you miss it, you can't go back down. You're forcing him to go up to 185, where I believe, honestly, Kamaru Usman simply isn't a top-five guy. A lot of his gifts rely on him being the stronger guy, being the better wrestler, and all this stuff doesn't work at 185. So, will the UFC make a hard-and-fast rule that might, in the long run cost them some big fights based on previous experience no based on previous experience the UFC will never make a rule that might then bite them in the ass they don't rein in fighters who get arrested they're definitely not going to rein in fighters who don't make weight Uh, Kob, what do you think of that? A that idea that all right, you don't make weight by x number of pounds, or you know, if you don't make weight x number of times, you're banned. You can't go back to that weight class. What do you think of that as a rule? Before we get into anything else, (sighs) it's the only solution that that the yeah, it's the only solution.
1: We've heard Dana say similar things to that. Like they usually have to happen like maybe three times, and it has to be consistent. Like you missed weight three of your last five and then Dana White will, and on that last one Dana White will be like oh you know, yeah we gotta talk about moving him up like we're not gonna do
0: we this gotta talk about but it's yeah. not a rule
1: it's not a rule yes. but Dana will Dana will strongly imply that the only way you're gonna see this person again is at this weight class so to me like I agree with what you're saying I don't think the UFC is gonna do anything that might cost them fights I think the last time they tried that and did something instituted a rule was Yasada bringing them in With fighters that might pop positive in rune fights down the stretch, but at the same time, I felt like that was more of the UFC trying to show, you know, we're we're on top of this. We're gonna be we're the UFC. Like we're gonna have the strictest anti-doping thing. I almost felt like that was more of a glorified, like, look what we're doing here at the UFC. Yeah, yeah, it's a good move, Yeah, weight cutting can always, no matter what, be placed on the fighter. Like that's just the way. it, it, Like that, that UFC doesn't have to worry about it. It really doesn't. It's like, oh, you know what? Every other fighter makes weight. How many fighters do we weigh? To, uh, you know, every single year, yeah. how many people make weight? They can easily throw that one on the fighter, and that's no big deal. And to a large part, it's true. But we do see, like, like what we got to see in the Nico Montano documentary, when Nico's doing her weight cut with UFC personnel, we you know from the PI, and they're in charge of it. And their even assessment is, you know, it's probably better if we have her fight in. October then September, and they're like, nope, we need it September. Like, there are certain things that the UFC can control on that, but they don't because they want their fights. So, like, like you said, like they're not gonna risk, you know, like, oh yeah, you're not fighting for us or you're doing this if if it's gonna cost them fights down the stretch. I don't think it's just such a crazy issue that I don't think that we're there's there's never going to be one thing that solves it all. Like, oh yeah, we got it cured. I I don't know how much the UFC can really do about it.
0: Right. And, and and it's similar when you talk about fighter unions and all that stuff. All oh, fighters need to. Are you willing to sit through a strike season as a fan? Because we, we endured them in every other sport that had a union. Every sport that had a union. Every single one. We've had strike years. <laughs> every single one. Oh, you know, fighters should get paid more. They should have a union. They should have this, they should have that. Are you willing to sit through it? Are you willing to sit through an entire year of not having fights, whatever it is, right? They don't have seasons, but you get what I'm saying, because their contract demands weren't met, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Are you willing to do that? No. Okay, well then, and there's a downside to all these solutions. That's what I mean about this whole, they shouldn't allow this or that. The only solution I can realistically think of, is some kind of hard and fast rule of you miss weight twice, you can never go back to that weight class. Not a shunin. or... No, you can't. You aren't allowed to go back to that weight class. And the UFC is not going to risk, for example, a champion, and I'm just picking Kamaru Usman off the top of my head because he's a big 170, uh, not making weight. He has to go up to 185 where he is not... A factor. You just killed the number one pound for pound guy because you made him leave 170. Folks, do not expect the UFC to do that. It would be dumb. And Dana's a lot of things. Dumb is not one of them. But hey, I I throw it to you, KOB. That's the solution I thought of. Is there anything you can think of that they could even do to mitigate this?
1: Again, it's not going to be one stop, you know, one thing fixes all. <laughs> having been in this weight cutting world right w- we're gonna do whatever we have to do to cheat whatever test you're gonna try to throw out in front of us that's just the way it's gonna go Yes. like I don't know if it was my freshman year of high school or if they started it beforehand but that was we had weight certifications where you know you' they check your body fat percentage yep. and they say okay Hydration you are tests, yeah yeah well that that came later but like the, the first it was just the, the weight certification of like okay you are 12 percent body fat uh you weigh 158 you can go no lower. No lower than 140. Like, that's the lowest you can go and say and safely cut. Like, that's so you will not be able to wrestle that anything lower than 140 for the season. So <laughs> we all just started cutting weight right before we did the weight certification to make sure that we weren't gonna be told we couldn't get to the division we wanted to. Then they started doing the hydration tests. I think yeah. it was my senior year. And I even watched people cheat that because you're having multiple teams, full squads of wrestlers coming in, peeing into a cup, and they put some like a little, uh, you know, a little indicator in there to see like if you were properly hydrated. But it wasn't like we were anyone watched us pee into the cup, you know. Like I literally, wa- I was fine that year, my senior year, but I literally watched guys pee into the cup a little bit, put the cup under underneath the faucet, and run water into it, and then turn that in and pass. Like we're gonna get around any test you can do. That's just the way it's gonna go. Now, as far as what you could try to do, I thought there was a Canelo fight way back where they were checking him periodically to make sure like he was hitting certain weight required because he was always. They did that with ma- UL Romero. Yeah. I know they did that with UL Romero, and it didn't work. That's an option. And yeah. then the other option the only other option I feel like as far as the UFC goes, is <laughs> you add more divisions, but we've seen what that does what what that's done to boxing, it just it it. That means Dilutes more belts. Pool, yeah. yeah Dilutes the talent pool and talent pools that like, we, you know, we, some some divisions are lucky if they have a top 10. Some aren't. Some, some are in way better shape, like lightweight. You can go into 15 and who knows. But like you may dilute talent or you just don't have enough bodies to like put into a weight class. So I, I am still a massive proponent of 165. For the women's divisions, I mean, what do they have? They have 125, 135,
0: 145. There's nothing else can fit in there.
1: There's really not. What are you at yeah. 140? I can't even fill a 145. Like, so yeah. I, I just don't know. It, there's not going to be an easy solution to this, no matter what. And I do feel like we're going to see, like, they could put the whole three strikes you're out at this weight class thing, but then you're just hurting someone who maybe was good in that division and maybe has problems with it. So I don't know, man. It's a weird thing to have, but I just laugh like, like, kind of rub me the wrong way. It was when, when Joe's like, yeah, just do what one's doing. It's like, we don't really know what one's doing, to be perfectly yeah. honest. Yeah. Like, everything, like, we are seeing public weigh-ins. Media is there to cover it for UFC, Bellator, all these things. PFL, we're seeing weight, weight results. I, I don't know if there's a simple question aside from, like, uh, trying to do some side of, like, side-by-side like side certification, but like I said, fighters will always look for a way to cheat that if they can. See, that's I just remember- the way it goes.
0: I remember one time weighing in, and it was the school visited us. I forget which school it was, and you know, I went to Long Beach Poly High School, and they visited us, and I stepped on the scale, and I made it. I was 145 or two. I made it. And then whoever I was wrestling stepped on, and they were heavy. And they like, and, and the coach of their school was like, yeah, he made it at our at – our, you know, we weighed him three times on three different scales at our place, and he made it. And our coach goes, I just, you know, zeroed out this scale, and I, I, in my head, I was like, No, you didn't. I was standing right here. You didn't. You, you haven't checked this thing in like two years, right? But it's the one we weigh in on, right? So we all made it because that's the scale we weigh on. But I mean, you haven't checked this thing since I was a freshman, right? It's hilarious. So I've, I've seen everything you're talking about when it comes to, to, to weight cutting. So I don't know. We'll see. Until then, people are just going to keep missing, and that's the way it goes. What's up, folks? Welcome back to Unlocking the Cage. It's been, an, it's been a packed first hour. Start off hour number two. We're going to have some fun, chasing gears a little bit. Eric Davis from Fandango joins us now to do some movie talk. How you doing, Eric? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. No problem at all, my man. So, in a very general way, before we talk about specific movies coming up that I think fit this category very, very well... Is the movie industry getting on back with some comfort food? What I mean by that is stores we know comparatively well, uh, characters we understand comparatively well, that we know will be bankable. Is that a formula that studios are looking at now to sort of get back on track post-COVID?
2: Yeah, I mean, right now we're looking at, like, one of the biggest Octobers we've ever had, you know? I, I remember uh, Memorial Day, talking about the summer movie season, I was like, actually it's going to be kind of like an endless summer this year because so many movies were like postponed and pushed back that we wind up like in October where we have just a gluttony of content coming. And you know, both on the big screen and the small screen, some of these movies are day and date. They're available streaming uh, like the many saints of Newark, that Sopranos prequel that's out this week. That's also on HBO max. So I definitely think Hollywood is starting to turn that corner. You look at the success of that, that last Marvel movie, Shang-Chi, um, did very, very well, broke a lot of records, uh, especially Labor Day records. And so I, I think that there is a comfort level that's beginning to return in terms of like the box office. Um, and I think October is going to really help kind of give us a picture, at least paint a picture for the next few months in terms of, uh, you know, are people interested and what are they interested in seeing? Uh, the Bond movie, I think, will be a big one, especially globally. How how secure is the global uh, box office, the marketplace? Uh, but I, I do think that we're getting to uh, a much better place and maybe the best place that we've been in since, uh, God, February 2020.
0: How are we doing in terms of that split between, it seems like a big debate. I've, I've seen movies come out, and I, I think it was Venom that said, in theaters only. They made a big deal about, we're not streaming this. Others, they make a big deal about, hey, available on all platforms. Check it out everywhere come Friday. What has been kind of the, the, the dry run of this? These first movies that are available on all platforms versus ones that are selectively theaters. What's been the return on those? Yeah, well, everybody's
2: still experimenting. Um, yeah. And we're seeing that this, this month, even on Universal with this Halloween movie. Uh, they're putting it on Peacock, which is the Universal streaming service, and it's also in theaters. And so, I mean, what we have seen from the data, at least, um, is that they have, you know, decent, good opening weekends, um, but then they tend to fall off box office wise because they are available at home. Uh, and, and there's other ways for people to watch them. Piracy has been a concern with some of these more notable films that are debuting day and date. Um, and so, you know, we'll see. But then, you know, Disney does have success. They're able to upcharge for their movies on Disney Plus. And so they can kind of add to that to that overall box office to to give it a bigger number. But I am of the opinion personally that it, it it still makes sense to take these bigger movies and give them that exclusive theatrical release because that is where you're going to not just have the most success financially, uh, especially if it's a film that appeals to an international op, uh, audience as well you know but it also I think that there's something to be said about a movie that you can only see in theaters and and how and and what it does for the culture of the moment and and sort of how we kind of regard it um, in, in, in history. You know, I think all of the biggest movies that have been such big parts of our lives that have gone on to be classics that we talk about, that we quote all the time. Uh, these are all movies that had exclusive theatrical debuts. And, and while you may wind up watching a movie 17 times on TV and only once in the theater, it was really that original theatrical experience that sort of embedded it um, in, you know, inside your heart and your soul. And so I do think that you know, for these movies to, to, to continue to be events, to continue to be big cultural moments, uh, they that exclusive theatrical uh, window is, is paramount, in my opinion. Uh, Eric, you, you reminded me of a Bellator story that I got to tell.
0: There was a guy that used to be at the weigh-ins, and he worked with Bellator on, in the commission side. And he'd sit there, and he had like this really nice suit. He was this Italian guy, and he kind of looked like a gangster sitting there, right? And I never knew what he did for a living. And one day, I'm just walking past him. I was like, you know, what do you do? Like, I always see you sitting there like a mobster or something sitting there. And he goes, and he goes, says something about... He goes, yeah, well, you know, I'm just sitting there. I said, yeah, why don't you get your shine box? And we went. 100% 100% the first time I ever met him into that entire scene from Goodfellas to the point where somebody else one of the guys, like one of our directors dumped it and goes, ah, you insulted him a little You I, no, no, we're well, kissing and hugging like a jerk like, it bonds people together having those quotes in those movies and it's really true that so many are because they've been seen in the theater, man and I just wonder if this generation one of my producers, Ariel, is listening right now She's we have t-shirts older than her but
2: do you think this generation sees it the same way we do? Um, You know, I think that part of the generation will. You know, I think it's it's up to those kids. You know, every generation are going to have kids that fall in love with cinema, that want to go to film school, that want to be film critics, that want to be filmmakers. And and they're going to dig into that history and do that research and, and sort of grow their passion and their love. And then it's up to them to sort of turn to the rest of their generation and say, this is still so important to us. We have to keep this around. Uh, so I talk to my, my kids. I have a 12-year-old daughter who, uh, when I mention a film to her, the first thing that comes out of her mouth is, is it on Netflix? And I'm like, well, not, yeah. not every film that's created is on Netflix. Um, and so, you know, I do think that there's, there, it, it can be important, um, but I think it's going to be up to other people from that generation who who it's been passed down to them, and they see the importance of it uh, to keep to keep it going, to keep that flame alive. Um, but I, I do think it's going to be uh, a little bit more difficult to champion, you know, certain experiences to a generation that is so used to watching everything you know, on their phone. Like my daughter won't even watch a movie on, on her TV. She sits there and watches it on her phone and it drives me nuts. Um, But that's what they're just accustomed to. And, and, and that's okay. That's fine. Um, But you know, in, in 10, 15 years, uh, when they are now adults, now in the marketplace, they are now consumers. You know how is that? How is that 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 childhood going to manifest itself as adults? Will going to the movies be important? Going out to the theater, going to sports events, and all of that. So we'll have to see. But I do think it's going to be it's good. The onus is on the generation uh, to to keep these things imp- uh, being important and meaningful.
0: All right, so I'm speaking to Eric Davis from Fandango. I want you to walk me through a couple movies that are in that category of comfort food, right? We have a Marvel franchise in Venom, which Marvel seems to be the go-to. We need a big movie. Uh, Let's go through the comic books and find one. Venom, the sequel there with Carnage, who's a obviously a, a Marvel character that anybody read the comic books. Me, I'm a dork. Uh, knows, I, I know Carnage. There's that, and then we have the Many Saints of Newark, which is a prequel to Sopranos. Which, once again, we know the characters. We love Tony Soprano. Tell me about these two movies and how you think they're going to do. Well, the great,
2: the best thing about Venom, in my opinion, is it's like 90 minutes. You know, <laughs> so movies these days are so long. Uh, 90 minutes, you're you're in, you're out. Uh, It kind of reminds me of like a 90s comic book movie where, look, you're not going to get a lot of development from the villain. You're not going to get an hour's worth of of scenery chewing backstory on Carnage. Uh, You know, it's the Tom Hardy show. I think Tom Hardy is fantastic in this dual role that he plays of Eddie Brock and its symbiote venom. It's, It's very much like a buddy kind of odd couple sort of movie where you know they're together they hate each other they think they want to be apart but they actually do need each other and so it's really amusing in that way uh but I would not expect to go into Venom uh to get sort of the emotional depth that maybe maybe you got from the Shang-Chi movie which came out in September uh which was a a bit meatier in terms of its emotion and its character development uh but Venom is just a, a straight trip it's a ride for 90 minutes and if you like the first one, uh, I think you'll like this one. Uh, the Many Saints of Newark, I think, is good. I think it's solid. Look, I'm a big, I'm a big Sopranos fan. I, I grew up in, in Staten Island, New York, right over the river from Jersey. Um, I, I know people that, that – Was your nickname hated. Big Pussy, Eric? <laughs> Come on, Eric, was it? What was your nickname? <laughs> it, it was not, but, you know, there was a guy across the street from me that that was very involved, and I didn't know that until he passed away uh, in prison. But so I am somebody who grew up around this world, and, and I think that the movie is good, but I walked out of there saying to myself, why wasn't this a limited series? Um, mm, and i yeah. curious to see, curious to see how other people, what they take away from it, because, you know, the film sets up all these different kinds of, you know stories uh and you kind of want to see it expanded and so i think it's interesting that they've kind of gone from like you have one of the most successful tv series of all time and you say the follow-up is going to be a movie and i'm curious about that decision because that was the first thing i thought about when i walked out from the movie i said i like this i wish it was longer i wish it was a limited series that being said you know, uh, Michael Gandolfini, uh, James Gandolfini's son, plays the young Tony Soprano. He's very good in it. Uh, Vera Farmiga is the young Lydia. Uh, if you're a Sopranos fan, you get to see young Paulie, young Big Pussy, young Silvio, uh, young Junior. And, and for me as a fan, that was the fun part of the movie is sort of watching and seeing how they came together uh, as a crew. Uh, David Chase, the creator, wants to do more movies. If he's listening to this, I would say, sir uh let this thing, let's do a limited series the next time because there's a lot of interesting ideas in here that I think could have used a little bit more uh room to develop the
0: difficulty I'm talking to Eric Davis from FanDango a uh, fellow movie junkie like myself the the problem I see with a lot of prequels and Star Wars is probably the worst offender here is there's a a almost a compulsion to fit everything from the first movie into the prequel like every stupid character that you're like, oh, God, you know, these people didn't know everybody 20 years earlier. Did did the many states of Newark have that forced feeling or was it done naturally? Where, God, gee, he happens to know everyone he, he knows in the series 20 years earlier. Did it feel forced or was it natural enough? Because I find that with prequels, yeah. they do that all the time, man.
2: Yeah, they do do it, you know, and yeah. if there's, like, a famous, I, like, like, I think of, like, the Solo movie, right? And I'm like, there's, like, the famous, you know, how do, why do we have to know how Han Solo got his name? You know, like, they, these prequels will come along and try to tie up every single yes. end. And you're like, I don't need to have the answer to that question. Right. Um, but this one, I think it does a good job. You know, a lot of the characters in it are members of the Soprano or the Multisanti family. You know, we do know that those families were very close uh, from when they were very at a very young age. And, you know, the main characters in this are, uh, if you are a fan, Christopher Moltisanti, you remember from the uh, series, his yep. father and his grandfather are big parts of this film. And then you have the Sopranos and, and their families. So a lot of it is just these families that have known each other for decades. Um, and, and they're sort of coming together, really, for the first time. Uh, and so it does make sense to see... You know your young Silvio and Pauly because they, you know, these were they were young guys just coming up at that time. Uh, so a lot of it does uh, does make sense. Um, I just would have liked to see a little bit more space given because the first half of the movie feels like it's it's the Moltisanti story. Second half of the movie feels like it's the Soprano story. I Feel like with a limited series, you can really let both of those stories shine.
0: Uh, it being October 1st, I'm talking to Eric Davis from Fandango about this. Um, one thing I got to know, man, I have been watching because October 1st, I'm starting to watch horror movies pretty much every night. Horror movies are where I'm going. I've always been a fan. Anything good on your radar coming up before Halloween?
2: Well, I mean, we have Halloween Kills. Is uh, is I'm a big fan of that first Halloween that they did, kind of like that sequel to to the original a couple of years ago, David Gordon Green. This is part of a trilogy, so that Halloween Kills movie is coming out. I'm excited about that. Uh, Edgar Wright has a film coming out towards the end of the month called Last Night in Soho that has some sort of Italian horror influences, um, and he's always a really great filmmaker in that genre sense. And so I'm I'm looking forward uh, to that one too. Uh, there's a family movie out this weekend, The Adams Family too. So if you're like I can't show my kids the real gory stuff you have uh that option that's actually both in theaters and at home as well uh so there's a mix of things in terms of new content uh that's coming there's an Antlers movie uh Guillermo del Toro produced that's coming out uh right around Halloween as well so so there's all that stuff and then of course you have those classics like my kids are begging me to show them the original Halloween uh, this year. And I'm like, I, it's, I don't know if you're ready for it yet, but I thing, grew
0: up so. on that and I turned out fine. I turned out great.
2: Eric, my parents had no
0: sense of when I could watch or could not watch a movie and I turned out great.
2: Yeah, no, I know. I, yeah. these days. I feel like when, when, when these kids just have access to like Netflix and there's just everything on there, like my 12 year old is watching this new thing, squid game on Netflix obsessed and it's violent and there's sex in it uh and but you know yeah i i think it's just part of the culture uh evolving and and i am definitely that dad that's like you know what you're gonna watch this scary movie even though you're really young uh because i think it you know it'll help you sort of appreciate uh film i think uh you know even if you don't sleep in your own bed for a little while that's right i mean (laughs) i I saw silence
0: of the lambs when i was 13 in the theater right right yeah greatness
2: oh (laughs) <laughs> those 80s movies I grew oh. up you know kind of late 80s early 90s and yeah my parents showed me everything <laughs> it was easy back then Eric I
0: appreciate your time buddy I'm gonna check these movies out uh, Venom 2 coming out also we have The Many States of Newark Eric Davis from Fandango thank you so much for joining us buddy
2: thanks so much man take care have a good weekend
0: Unlocking the Cage with Jimmy Smith is part of the serious XM podcast network the executive producer is Michael Russo. The associate producer is Kelly Murphy. Sound design by Nuri Balin. Andy King is director of sports podcasting for Sirius XM. Special thanks to Sirius XM's senior vice president of sports programming and podcasting, Steve Cohen. And SiriusXM Fight Nation program director, Marissa Rivas. Series XM Podcasts.